Mic check, one, two. Count, use your word. Hey, you. That's original freedom. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Original Freedom Podcast. Super happy to be back on the air here. And um, with an amazing friend of ours in studio, uh, our new studio, that is, we're Zooming. A couple of us in California, uh, one in Chicago, and one in North Carolina. So I want to welcome everybody. We are stoked to have a great friend, Brian Anderson, on the podcast today. Brian and I, uh, and, and Tom and myself, all met, uh, if my memory serves me, in 2012, uh, shortly after Brian had uh, published his uh, first book. And I say first because he definitely needs to write a few more. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you some cool stuff about Brian. Um, he's a pilot. He's a veteran. Uh, the guy snowboards. Uh, he surfs. He skateboards, he's been an actor, he's been a stuntman, he's been on the cover of magazines, he has done, um, he's, he's written a book, um, he's been in films, and he's done everything that I just told you after having gone through an extremely traumatic experience in Iraq where he lost three of his limbs. So Brian and I met in 2012 and I got to meet a guy who in one way could be considered a triple amputee. Yet if you spend more than five minutes with him, you'll see you're just sitting with one of the coolest fucking souls you've ever met. And from that time until now, um, Brian has inspired me. He's inspired uh, many and I believe he's got millions more to inspire, which is why uh, we invited him here today. And I'm not going to steal any more of his thunder, although if he doesn't toot his own horn, I will do it for him. Uh, Brian, humbled to have you here. Um, What I'd love to do, man, is really stay focused in and around what we do here at Original Freedom, which is maintaining that mindset of limitless potential. Humans are absolutely pure potential and maintaining a mindset of possibility, right? And what's possible, not what's predictable, but what's unseen because you um, have absolutely gone through and not just endured, but thrived in times that would cripple literally mentally and emotionally most humans. So Man, whatever you're willing to share with us from fucking the bottom of the top um, on what it was like, what happened, and then also, like, how are you going to harness all this, and how are we going to take it into the future? Okay. Well, first off, thank you for having me, and that introduction was pretty pretty awesome. Uh, (laughs) You met every word, brother. I don't even know what to say to that. (laughs) Um. I guess maybe just go back to the beginning a little bit and like waking up as a triple amputee and I'm sitting there like looking down at myself like, okay, now what? I didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do, what kind of quality of life I was going to have. But my whole family was there. I have an identical twin brother, my sister, my my parents, um, my grandparents, aunts and uncles. They were all there and they were all kind of showing me that 
you know, regardless what happens, they're going to be there to support me or stand behind me. And so that kind of gave me enough strength to just be like, all right, you know, fuck it. Let me take it a day at a time and see what happens or where does it go? So I think the most important thing in that moment was that I wasn't ready to put myself into a box or limit myself. I wasn't going to be that guy that said, hey, I don't have any legs. I can't go climb a tree. I'm that guy that says, well, how do you know until you try? Right. And so um, I had that kind of mindset right in the beginning. And I had a pretty good attitude for like the first four months or so um, until I hit uh, a depression. And I got out of that pretty quick because like I was sitting there like for two weeks at Walter Reed and just watching all these soldiers come in. And I kind of started to realize that it wasn't being there and, and interacting with the other soldiers that was getting to me. It was just seeing the sheer amount of soldiers that were going through Walter Reed at that time in 2005. Um, I think that was one of the worst years, 2005, 2006. Um, oh yeah. Iraq. Five yeah. And, uh, so it was just that volume was depressing me. And then I'd realized, you know, I'd made it 10, 11 months in Iraq before I got blown up. And then I was at Walter Reed for four months and I sat there and thought to myself, so wait, in like a year, you haven't experienced any kind of real life. You've mm -hmm. been at war, you've been at the hospital, you've been recovering. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not what life is. And so I kind of forgot what life was about and what we were all fighting for and all of that. And so I, I looked at my mom and I was like, Hey, I need to get out of here. Like I need to experience real life again. And like, and, and she had enough strength to be like, you know, okay, I recognize that. Where are we going? Where do you want to go? And I was like, how about Vegas? And an hour later, <laughs> I'm playing to Vegas. Yes. I spent three days down there with my best friend, Sarah, and my mom. And I had a good time. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were a couple of bad moments in there because I was trying to get off things and do certain things. But for the majority, I had fun. And, and by doing that and being out there in front of the people and, and all of that, it really kind of forced me to focus on what was in front of me instead of think about what had happened or dwell on the past. And, and then in turn, I had fun. And so then I get back to Walter Reed and I'm thinking to myself, and, and it's not going to be like this for everybody, but it could be like this for some people. And maybe all you just need sure. to know is that it can just be as easy as a realization in your head. Um, so I got back to Walter Reed and I'm sitting there thinking like, all right, well, if I'm out there and having fun, and that forces me to live in the moment and focus on what's in front of me. Why don't I just go out there and have fun all the time? And then I'm sitting there doing like, be depressed, have fun, be depressed, have fun. <laughs> I'm going to go out and have fun. And it's a tough I, choice, right? Tough choice. Right. <laughs> I know. Like, you know, um, I was 24 years old and I still wasn't ready not to go do stupid shit with my friends. <laughs> You know, like that was like the main motivation of just getting back out there to live in life. And like, I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know the path that I was going to get on. I hadn't come out on the cover of Esquire magazine yet, which was like the first thing that happened. Yeah. But 
up until that point, I didn't know where I was going and I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I started looking for jobs, like maybe at like the Rolling Meadows police, police station as a, as a dispatcher, because I was military police. Um, I thought about going back to American Airlines and they were like really welcoming me and, and saying that, you know, we'll find a spot for you at American. And they've been great to me. Um, everything just kind of snowballed though. Once I left, I was at Walter Reed for a year, which the average stay of a soldier is 18 to 36 months. And for me being a triple amputee, I'm like, I'm screwed. I'm going to be here 36 months. Uh, I just wanted to go home and start my life, get back to good. And I did that pretty quick. I got out in 13 months and, and went home, started my life. Um, wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It just, I wanted to go and live and do things. And, and so that was a huge motivation for me to get out of Walter Reed. Um, you know, the, everybody's attitude's really good there for the most part. Um, so we all help each other heal and stuff. And there's like that camaraderie. I mean, it's always difficult, you know, when somebody first gets there. But after like a month of being there, they're pretty much in high spirits too, usually. Uh, that was one of the coolest things about being at Walter Reed is that we were all there for each other. Even though we were all from different units and different states and, and all that, we were all in the same uh, combat. And, and so we all kind of literally felt like brothers and sisters and, and we all picked each other up when we, when we needed to. And so it was really cool. Um, yeah. That's you all I got about that. You, <laughs> what? Dropped a little, you dropped a little bomb in there as well. You're like, and I hadn't even come out on the cover of Esquire yet. So you, you bust out of Walter Reed uh, thir 13 months, which normal humans take 36 and probably a triple amputee 48 or more. And if anyone ever uh, has the, or chooses to read your book, I'd highly recommend it. Um, um, point of no return, correct? No, no turning back. No turning back. You're close, no. though. It's all right. Son of a bitch. Well, I can tell you it's a great book. I can tell you all about it because um, that's one of the things I was going to say is Brian tells uh, some great funny-ass stories in that book. Uh, and one of them is about a time he and a, another a double amputee break out of Walter Reed um, uh, by, I believe it's uh, Brian's going to drive because he's got, no, the other guy's going to drive. He's got two good hands, right? Well, he's going to do the pedals because he's got He's going to do the pedals. You're going to drive and you guys are going to go have some beers. Yeah. Uh, and they pulled it off. Um, yeah. There's that. And we got caught coming back in the gate too. But. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> my mom's rental car. <laughs> she went home for the weekend though, so. Yeah, I know. It's a great and then, one. I never told her. And then I put it in the book. And, uh -oh. and the book's coming out. And I'm like, oh, shit. I should probably tell my mom that I stole the car. <laughs> and got caught coming back in. Oh, they let us go anyway. But um, Yeah, that's yeah, the other thing. That was the greatest. Read, what's that? That was the greatest part of the story is whenever you guys get caught, you were an MP, <laughs> right? You were an MP, which is the irony as well. And yeah. MP catches both of you and is like, you crazy bastards have made it this far. Might as well let you finish. And you guys yep. went home, right? <laughs> yep. Just go. Just go, man. Just go. Yeah. So, uh, so Nate can edit out the part where I fucked up the name of your book because I yeah, remember it was impactful, see? Um, 
But what I was getting at, man, was um, filling a few dots. You got out of there quicker. You talked about mindset. You talked about a simple realization, like I'm not done doing stupid, dumb shit with my friends. I'm 24. Um, you get out of there quick and then end up on the cover of Esquire. How would all that like correlate? And if you would rewind back to childhood at some point, talk about a time you were an Olympic hopeful um, <sighs> as an athlete. Me and my, okay, so let's go to the gymnastics part. <laughs> I already forgot where we were at the first thing you said, so we can get back to that. But um, in high school or growing up, I had an identical twin brother, and that was like pretty much having a, a best friend implanted into your life. Even though we fought like crazy, it was, you know, what brothers do um but we played sports we did everything together baseball basketball football um but we had always loved like ninja movies and like the ninja turtles and power rangers and like watch them flip into action and do things like that like we'd always wanted to be able to do that and so once we got into high school um I had just broken my leg playing baseball that summer, right at the beginning of the summer. And so when I got to high school, I kind of wanted to try a couple different things because they offered way more sports that was like just offered to like community kids. And so they had, you know, soccer and wrestling and, and uh, gymnastics and volleyball and all kinds of things. And so I chose not to play baseball and to try out soccer and then wrestling and gymnastics. Wrestling and gymnastics were at the same time, and I had wrestled in junior high. But me and my brother, we were tiny, and so like, we did good because we knew how to wrestle, and all the other kids were like, uh, I don't wanna say like weak. <laughs> they were like <laughs> tiny and, and littler than we were, and so, we were the lightest weight class you could. And so like, if you think about those guys, the lightest kids on the, on the, you know, wrestling teams, they're usually like toothpicks. And if you don't have the technique, you're going to lose pretty much. So me and Bobby kind of did good with that. But gymnastics was new and exciting. And we were learning how to use our body in very different ways. And I absolutely loved that. But since because gymnastics and wrestling were at the same time, I'd spend two hours in gymnastics and then two hours down in wrestling and then go home for the day. And that was hard. Um, not to mention like coordinating meets and, and stuff like that. And so dropped, dropped wrestling and, and just stuck with gymnastics because at, at day one, we saw a kid do a flip-flop. Me and Bobby looked at each other and did a flip-flop, just tried it and did it. I mean, it was sloppy as shit, but the coach <laughs> saw that and was like, ooh, <laughs> we can work with that. <laughs> and so from then on, I never even really went to a real gym class because they offered what was called power gym. And so like the gymnasts, instead of having to go to gym class, could go and do gymnastics as their gym class. And so I got to do that all year um, and then do gymnastics during the season and stuff. Um, and me and Bobby, we just were naturals and we got really good really fast made varsity by the end of the year um going to state we didn't make state the first year uh but then we went back to state every year after that and uh never won state but got, got top 25 um and then we were 
I wasn't necessarily an Olympic hopeful, but we were starting that path. Gotcha, gotcha. Right as the senior year. And then I rolled both of my ankles into my shins doing a, a backflip punch front. Of and course, it's always the backflip punch front. That, right, you know. <laughs> that one gets me every time. I know, Tom. <laughs> uh, I punched too early, and the ground wasn't there yet, so I was fully extended with both my feet and toes, and then the ground hit. Both of my ankles just rolled into my, into my shins, and that was it. Um, they looked at me and said, oh, I don't know. You might be able to do it. You stretch your ligaments really good. You're probably going to have weak ankles the rest of your life, and from then on, I, like, I, was, I just graduated, so I'm like, all right, time to get a job. And then me and Bobby got the jobs at American Airlines. Um, so that's kind of how all that worked. Get back up to being at Walter Reed and like, okay, so one of the most common things my friends say um, in interviews, or they tell me this, what they say in interviews, and, and especially my sister, um, a lot of people ask them, so what was he like before the accident? And then what was he like? How is he different after the accident? And they're all sitting there like, there is no difference. Like, he's still just the same person he was before, just minus a few limbs. Yeah. Like, so I haven't really changed at all. Um, I was able to keep who I am and what I do. And I don't know. I, it just... You know, like when people say, when you're a kid and you're about to go into the military, everybody thinks in your family, like, oh, they're going to change you, military's going to change you, war's going to change you, this and that. Like, that was very much on the forefront of my mind the whole time I was in the military to make sure that I stayed true to myself and who I am. And so I guess that just kind of really carried over into, after I got blown up, that, hey, make sure you stay who you are. Like, be you you um so i always just tried to do that your mindset around that has always amazed me because we're different in that way and that i you know i talk about how i've been affected i talk about ptsd and you know, all these things all these things and you have always since the day we've met been this like no nah, i don't get all that like I'm me, I do me, and I'm like, you've always blown my mind, and I believe that. I also believe you're a fucking enigma, um, yet it, it's unbelievable. Um, it really is. Well, I appreciate that. But anyway, that attitude goes into being at Walter Reed, and when I was at Walter Reed, there was always media rolling around there, um, doing things, trying to figure out what's a good story and whatnot, and the LA Times um, stumbled across me. Actually, they that's an interesting story. So these LA Times writers, photographer and writer, were in Baghdad um, doing like an embedded piece or something. And they were gonna do, they were going to the hospital. Well, I had just left that hospital the, the day before. And so they get to this hospital and they're like, all the doctors and all the nurses are like, oh, you should have been here yesterday. You should have seen this kid. He's like, it's triple amputee. And I don't know how I could have possibly inspired those guys. I was unconscious the whole time. <laughs> how am I possibly like inspiring these guys? Like, they're just like, oh my God, this kid was amazing. He's okay. So then um, they go from Baghdad to Balat and they miss me by a day again. 
And all those people are sitting there telling, oh, you should have been here yesterday. You should have seen this kid. Uh, he was incredible. And so then they're like, well, we're on our way to Walter Reed. And might as well go look this kid up. And so then they, they went to Walter Reed and looked me up and, and said, hey, you know, we heard about you from being in a Baghdad and, and Balad and Launchstool. And everybody kept telling us we needed to go see this kid. So here we are. And so they spent like two days with me and uh, did this huge front page spread about me and my friends. And uh, we even went down before he uh, uh, published the article, we went down to Texas and visited my guys. And we all went to the beach together. And my, my old army roommate was carrying me out of the water. And that was the front page picture. Uh, and then there was just like this whole story. and. I, gosh, I don't even remember what that story was really about, what's said in there, but that led to Esquire magazine seeing that. And then as I was leaving, they called me up and said, hey, we saw the article in the LA Times. Um, you know, we'd like to do a story on a soldier too. Can we, can we do it on you? And I'm like, I, sure, I don't care, why not? <laughs> and it wasn't supposed to be a cover story or anything, they just, sent a couple guys down, spent some time with me, and then they were gone as fast as they ever came. And I didn't hear anything for like, I don't know, maybe a month. And then two weeks before the article was coming up, I was getting ready to leave Walter Reed. And they called me up and said, hey, this article turned out great. We're gonna go ahead and put you on the cover. And I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, it's gonna be great. I'm like, uh, okay, I mean, it's your magazine. Do what you want. But I'm sitting there thinking like, dude, you just had Scarlett Johansson, Robert De Niro, George Clooney, and then now you're going to put me yeah. on the cover? Like, what? Okay. Hey. And, and that, yeah, that was huge. Um, it was really cool. Brian, I got to ask. So you bring, up, you bring up Esquire and you've been in a number of movies and, and TV shows and that kind of thing, but I was just looking around as well. Are you also, were you featured in a comic book as well? <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> so tell me that story. Captain America. Yeah. Uh, and in the comic, it's Captain America's fault that I get blown up. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> drive down IED Alley as a punishment. And yeah. Um, okay, so I was doing this um, cusp, CUSPS conference, C-U-S-P-S, um, in Chicago. And they do it like every year. And it's, what was it? It was like 20, 25 of the most forward thinking people of today. And so like, I got to give a presentation there and, and they had a Kennedy there at one point. Like there was a lot of big people that were speaking at this thing. And so I just felt like I was in good company. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And um, it was over like a two day period. And just all day, there were just different speakers for two days and it was really kind of cool. Um, but I got to do it on September 11th and so they had this guy, Lyle Orworko, um, and he was a photographer, and he's the guy that captured the plane hitting the second tower that was on the cover of Time Magazine the next month or whatever, the next days after that happened. Um, so he spoke first, then I spoke. But at the time I spoke, I was smoking cigarettes, and I was 
running in and out because I got nervous and I'm just like, oh, all right, I got five more minutes. I got another time for a cigarette. So I go out and there's this guy, he's this English guy, his name is Paul Jenkins. And he worked for Marvel. Uh, he wrote Captain America and Spider-Mans and, and things like that. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, we met and we were talking and, and then he figures out that he's after me. And then he's like, oh, awesome. And then walks away. <laughs> and then I go on stage and I give my spiel and, and then he gets on stage and he's just like, like, what the fuck, man? They didn't think this thing through. First, they put the guy a photo, takes the photo of the you know, 9-11 thing on first. Then this triple MBT Iraq war veteran inspiring his shit. And now you get me, a comic book writer. I draw superheroes. <laughs> and he just, he had fun with it and it was funny. Um, but I don't know, for some reason, we just like really connected and um, became friends. And after you know, a couple weeks, a couple months, he's just like, you know, I'm, I really want to write Captain America, like about you and your story and, and whatever. And so he did and they followed through and that's how that kind of came about. And they made, um, it's called Captain America Theater of War. And they made four comics of that kind of theater of war issue. Well, he put my friends in other comics in that, um, series or whatever and other I don't know what you call it episodes <laughs> issues yeah. um and a different story like the one before mine is my buddy Jason Melodic and then the guy that I was with Kenny Olson he's in the one with me and plus like my family they drew my family in there like it, it looks like my family <laughs> it's really cool there's one difference though about that they wanted my right hand to be missing instead of my left hand so that at the end I can salute like this. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't, I don't care. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's really dramatic. Cool. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, it's Hollywood. <laughs> so like one of the coolest things about that one though, it's like when I tell my story about when I got blown up and the first things that I remember seeing, the way they depicted that in that comic book was really cool. It was a bunch of short like scenes mm -hmm. of like, first I saw black because there was so much smoke inside the truck. Then I started looking harder and I started to see green. And so then they show a little bit of green. And then I realized that I was on my back and I was looking at the at my, my Humvee seat. So then it clears out a little bit and you see the, the green Humvee seat. And then like there's another one. And it's just, I thought it was really cool how they decided to tell that piece of my story. That's awesome. And like staying on Hollywood for a second, I mean, with all the work that you've gotten to do, what to you was your favorite uh, really set or, or story or plot that you got to work with in your time? Man, <laughs> I've been really lucky. Um, as far as the people that I've gotten to work with and the movies and TV shows that I've gotten to be on. I mean, I mean, I'm going to have to say though, that probably my favorite moment was being able to act across Gary Sinise, um, who I've known for the last 10 years and worked for him for the last 10 years. Um, I got to be a murder suspect 
I mean, I wasn't the killer and I really wanted to be the killer, but <laughs> you know, I'll take what I can get. Uh, <laughs> and that I was on prosthetic legs. Like I literally wrote, like I played a Navy SEAL. I got to play a guy like you guys. Um, but I got blown up and I was a triple amputee. And the plot of this was kind of like, they found my Navy SEAL combat knife stuck in the dead girl, this girl who was a professional assassin. And they're like, well, who could kill uh, an assassin? Oh, and, a, and that assassin had killed my father. Oh. And so they're like, well, who could kill an assassin? Maybe a Navy SEAL with a killer motive? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so then they come and visit me and I, at this time now I own a, um, a high end performance shop, uh, cars and I'm underneath this Mercedes and I'm working on this car and they come up at me and they start questioning me and they're like standing over me and you know, they're like, we're just kind of thinking who could possibly, you know, kill an assassin and this and that. And then they look at me and they're like, what do you think? And I'm like, what do I think? And then I just roll out and then you get a picture of me, like my whole body prosthetics and everything. And then I roll over, I stand up and I get in their face and I'm just like, well, I'm not going to let you stand there and accuse me of murder. And mm. I don't know. It was, it was fun. Like <laughs> I had to like get a little heated with Gary and, <laughs> I don't know. It just, it was cool. But then at the same time, I got to do American Sniper and I'm sitting there working with Bradley Cooper and Clint Eastwood is standing next to me and I'm just like, oh, wow. that's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> uh, hey, <laughs> I don't know. And then like, I got to meet Heath Ledger on the dark night and watch them film all those stunts. That, that was amazing. Uh, did Hawaii Five-O. Those guys are all great. And then Magnum PI and those guys are all great. I, I don't know. Like, there's just a lot of cool things. The last one I did with Magnum PI was cool because they gave me a TV family, like a wife and two kids. And I was very curious to see what that was going to be like. My wife was hot, though. And my kids were really cute. Nice. Score, bro. It's, it's cool to be able to, you know, be all these different people, even though I'm technically playing, you know, the wounded veteran, which is fine. You know, it's <laughs> typecast. That's fine. You got to start somewhere. But kind of a gimmick to break into the industry. You're just extreme, bro. Right. Well, and you get to be all these different people, but at the end of the day, you could always just be yourself, you know? And that's probably my favorite thing about acting is like, you get to be all these different people, but then at the end of the day, you're just yourself. I don't know. I, th I think that's cool. That's awesome. So go back to your story with Gary Sinise and I mean, the 10 years you've gotten to spend with him, how did your relationship strike up with all that he does with, you know, within the veteran community and that kind of thing? <laughs> uh, well, I met Gary at Walter Reed and I was practicing walking on my legs and I noticed that somebody had walked in. There was all these peer visitors that would come and I never really gave a shit because I always thought, you know, they were just doing it, take pictures with the wounded soldiers and, ooh, look at me. Gary was different though. But I started walking around and I start walking through these people and I'm pushing around. I'm like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I tripped on somebody's foot and I fell forward and I just put my hands out like that. And 
landed into somebody and it was Gary's chest. And he just like stood strong and held me there. And I like pushed myself back up and I looked up and I'm like, holy shit, Gary Sinise, Lieutenant Dan. And he's just like, no, you're the real, real Lieutenant Dan. And I just looked down and looked up and I'm like, nope, that ain't ever going to happen. You'll always be Lieutenant Dan. And then we just sat and talked for like 10 minutes. Uh, and I could just tell he was genuine and real. And then we both figured out that we were both Chicago boys. And so then that kind of like gave us a little little connection. Um, and then he left. But then I came out on the cover of Esquire magazine. And I became Chicago's wounded warrior. And I started going to these events. And, and we, we kept running into each other at these events. Um, and so we'd talk and just talk more and more and talk about what we were doing. And um, then he was saying that he had created this Lieutenant Dan band. Um, and he hadn't started the foundation yet. Oh, wow. Uh, but so he's like, you know, you know, maybe you could come and hang out with us or do a couple events with us. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And so I started traveling around with them a little bit. Um, and we do these charter flights. And then American Airlines, because I worked for American Airlines, and Gary has a really good connection with them, too. And so every year they would do this Skyball, uh, which is a fundraiser event in Dallas, Texas, for Snowball Express, which is this thing where they take all these kids of um, fallen soldiers and bring them all to Dallas for uh, a thing. Well, now they've switched it to Gary Sneeze Foundation has now since taken over that. And now they're bringing like thousands of kids to Disneyland every year. Um, of all kids who have lost parents uh, in, in combat. And, and so, like, we kept doing those events together. And uh, one time, they were going, they were headed to Hawaii, and there's like, they offered me to go with. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to pass that up. Get to go to Hawaii with the Lieutenant Dan Band? Talk about VIP treatment. And so, we fly into Hawaii, and we were there for like five days, I think. And we did three different shows um, at three different bases on Hawaii. Um, and like we just, you know, during the day too, got to hang out, do whatever. We went surfing. That was the first time I ever went surfing. And we went to Pearl Harbor. And it was just really cool. And it really seemed like we were building something. And then the last night, the last show that we were there, Gary had asked, um, if I would have dinner with him. And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, like we're at the show though. And he's like, yeah, just come back into the, the green room or whatever. And um, I'm like, sure. And so we sat back and um, and that moment is when he's sitting there saying, hey, I like what you're doing. You're always, you know, positive and inspiring and, and trying to help others. I'd like you to be one of the ambassadors for my Gary Sinise Foundation. And I was just like, whoa. Hell yeah. And, uh, and then we're like, we started talking a little bit and then I was like, all right, so wait, 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 wait. And this is where Gary actually messed with me a little bit, which I didn't get his humor yet. So it totally fucked with me. <laughs> um, so I'm like, so what is it? What exactly do I have to do? Like, what is an ambassador going to do? And he's just like, Oh, you know, just kind of, show up when I can't be there, talk really highly about me, just, you know, the best things you could possibly say about me. <laughs> and I looked at him and I just kind of, 
And then he just starts laughing. And he's like, I totally got you. He's totally getting like, dude. Okay. <laughs> it was funny. But no, it was it was, yeah, just be there when they can't be there. Or, you know, bring awareness and things like that. Stuff like that. Yeah. And so like I'll go and speak and they'll send me places. It's pretty cool. That's awesome, man. And I, I, I was watching something earlier, I think, of uh, as you were accepting a life award about earlier this year, right, with uh, with Eagle Rare, oh, yeah. Eagle Rare Life Award. You had said something that you have seven jobs. Or so, is that right? Like you're uh, – <laughs> yeah. What I mean, is technically, it like, if you want yeah. to speak, – Speak to that. I mean, just as far – because to me that, you know, your 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 overall personality, your, your positivity, all that, I mean – to, to say, you know, you have these technically, you have seven jobs, that kind of thing. My mind just went to like people now, you know, that would say that there's not enough time for this. There's not enough time for that. I mean, what on that topic would you speak to, you know, those people about, especially with how you live your life and maximize the most out of it? Well, first off, when, when you hear seven jobs, you get shocked, but you automatically think seven nine to five jobs. I don't have any nine to five jobs. I do events. I do, you know, things. Um, so it, there is a lot more room for time. And, and if I had to like say two words on how that works, I would just have to say time management, like priorities, um, you know, it's not always easy. Uh, there are moments where there's, three weeks, a month or two months out of the year where it's just go, 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 go. But the majority of the year I have time off. I have a week off. I have, you know, so like I have time to do different things, set different things up. And I really do compartmentalize things. Meaning like, you know, one day I'm like, I'm focused on, all right, I'm only focused on things I have to do for my house, laundry, <laughs> cleaning things, cooking, you know, prepping stuff, whatever I need to do. And then like the next day I'll be like, all right, well, I need to take, take care of vehicles and do things like that. Or, you know, today's work day, I got to go and do a video for USA Cares or Gary Sinise Foundation or, you know, whatever. And so like, it's just about time management and priorities and, you know, don't bite off too much that you can't chew it. You know, like I didn't just start off with seven jobs, you know, like I started off speaking and then I got this and I realized, Oh, I have more time. I could take, I could, I can handle that. Um, and so things like that, I don't know. We all just try and shit. Nobody really knows what they're doing in the beginning. You just throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. And then the ones that stick, you keep doing that a little bit more. And then you figure things out from there. And it's all about what they teach us in the military it's adapt and overcome. I'm just open to it and change and, and adapting and, and thinking outside the box and using things in unconventional ways. Like, I don't know. That just to me shows the testament, um, you know, of how that, how ingrained that is into what you do. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I kind of expected somewhat of an answer like that just because it is like, I mean, you wouldn't be able to pull that off if that wasn't just in your DNA to, to you know to adapt and overcome like you have said and and yeah like me and scott were talking yesterday you know about me possibly not being at one of those jobs and and that's an important one for me but it's also important for me to stay true to myself and i'm not going to collect a paycheck just to collect the paycheck 
right. you don't necessarily need it. And uh, like I, like you just said, or like I have this mentality of like, I, you know, okay, uh, that job's gone, but that leaves room for more stuff. And I'm always going to push forward and try to drive through or create change the world like that's always been one of my goals is to try to make this world a better place. Mm -hmm.